0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode 330 of f collaborate and listen with your host Matt Payne. On today's episode, I was super fortunate to host a conversation with the legendary landscape photographer Bruce Barnbaum. Bruce is known for his black and white prints and evocative images of the Sierra Nevada. Having studied under Ansel Adams, Bruce brings over 50 years of photography experience to our conversation. He is also known for his best-selling book, The Art of Photography, which has sold over 100,000 copies. Today's conversation spans a variety of topics and is sure to delight you. I wanted to also give listeners a heads up that Bruce and I recorded this episode using some screen sharing technology, so for the best experience, I recommend heading over to YouTube. I tried my best to describe the images while he was sharing them throughout the latter part of our conversation, but it is a much richer experience to see them for yourself. Lastly, I want to thank the newest supporters of the podcast on Patreon, including Dario Perizzolo and Michael Blanchett. Thank you both for keeping the podcast alive and ad-free. If you too would like to sustain the podcast financially, please support us by going to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen. I appreciate all of you who have already stepped up to keep the podcast going for over six years now. Okay, let's get to this week's show with Bruce Barnbaum. All right, Bruce Barnbaum, it's great to have you on the podcast.
1: Well, it's great that you invited me, so I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, of course. Your name has come up in conversations many, many times over the years of me doing this podcast. Lots of people have recommended you for the show and I'm just super grateful that we could finally make it happen.
1: I am too. So let's make it happen.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Bruce, for for the few people that are living underneath a rock that aren't familiar with you, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I I'm a photographer. I have been a photographer now for over 50 years. It was a rather dramatic change from what I had intended to be as a kid and young adult, which was to be a physicist. I went through school, got a bachelor's and a master's degree in mathematics uh, together with physics at UCLA. But I never got to the point where I felt that I could get a PhD and be a real dramatic researcher in the field of physics. So uh, I had a job for several years as a computer programmer working for a company called Aerospace Corporation in the Los Angeles area. And I literally hated the job from the first I sat down there. So I just needed to get away from it. And I did not know where to go. Uh, everything that I could think of required going back to school and I must say, I was up to here with school. So um, that that wasn't going to work. But in the meantime, I had uh, built up a uh, an interest in photography, just as a hobby. It was basically the result of backpacking, hiking in the Sierra Nevada Mountains in California, a fantastic mountain range. And uh, it grew from there. And uh, what really was the turning point was a happenstance uh, situation in 1968. Um, first of all, let me just say that I, I got my master's degree in 67. So I was on the job for about a year and a half, year or so, at the point of the story I'm about to tell you. There was a major environmental battle going on between the Sierra Club one of the most well-known environmental organizations, and Walt Disney Enterprises. And the battle was this. Uh, Sequoia National Park in the southern Sierra Nevada mountains was shaped like a giant fat horseshoe. And in the center of that horseshoe was a valley named Mineral King Valley. Mineral King, uh, the valley, the lowest portion of the valley is at 7,200 feet. The mountains on the east side of the valley rise to over 12,000 feet on the west side to nearly 11,000 feet. The Sierra Club wanted uh, Mineral King to be a portion of uh, Sequoia National Park. Walt Disney Enterprises wanted to create the largest ski resort in North America right there. So the battle lines were drawn. Learning about that, I was very much in favor of that section being included in Sequoia National Park. By that time, I had learned a little bit of photography. I was making my own negatives and even my own photographs in my bathroom and bedroom darkroom in the apartment I lived in, in Los Angeles. And I went to the the Mineral King area on the four-day July 4th extended weekend in 1968. Made photographs on a number of trails and other places, and then did a very bold thing. I called the Sierra Club, which was located in San Francisco, and asked if they could use any photographs of Mineral King fully expecting them to say that uh, Ansel Adams is on their board of directors and they're loaded with photographs. But instead they said, that would be fantastic, we don't have anything. So I said, okay, under those circumstances, let me send you some eight by ten black and white images that I had made and was going to print, uh, which I did. And the only thing I said was, If you send any of these out for any purpose, uh, just let me know, and I will resupply the image or the images that you had sent out, so that you have a supply of those. And that was basically the last I heard of that. I sent those images probably by the end of July, perhaps early August of that year, and it was in late September of that year, I get a letter from Britannica Encyclopedia and in those days if you bought a set of the encyclopedias for the next 10 years you would get what they called the yearbook which was uh, kind of a compilation of what Britannica thought were the major important issues of that year. And the letter that I got from Britannica said could we have permission to use your photograph of Mineral King that appeared in the New York Times, and I was dumbfounded. I was thinking, what's this all about? I immediately contacted the Sierra Club and said, what is this all about? And they said, oh, we're sorry, but right after you had sent us the photographs, we got contacted by the New York Times, and they wanted to do a major article about the Battle of Mineral King, and we sent them some photographs. Uh, in addition to the interviews that we did with them. And I asked for a name of somebody at the New York Times. They gave me the name. I contacted that person. He told me when it was published. I was able, in the Los Angeles area where I was living at the time, to get a back copy of that issue. And it was the Sunday, August 18th issue. And I had no idea where it would be in the Sunday edition, you know, it's huge. I'm paging through the paper, and in the magazine section, I turn the page, and suddenly there's a two-page photograph of Mineral King, and it's my photograph. The article began on the right-hand page, kind of in the lower left corner, first few uh, words or sentences, and then it went on for about six or eight more pages, which talked about the entire battle and it included some maps and some photographs. And, uh, even a couple more photographs of those were mine as well. And it gave me name recognition It said photograph by Bruce Barnbaum, And I called back to the fellow at the New York times and said, you know, I really want to thank you for using my photographs and giving me name credit. But I do have a question. Do I get paid for this? And he wrote back and he said, well, yeah, you do. (laughs) Of course. We have absolutely no information about where you live or whatever. I am quite sure that the only thing that I wrote on the back of those uh, images that I sent to the Sierra Club was my name and perhaps what trail or what location within Mineral King I made the photograph. Uh, So at that point, I gave the fellow from the New York Times my address and everything, And several weeks later, I see an envelope in my mailbox in the apartment where I was living, and the return address was from the New York Times. I opened it right there, and there was a check in the mail. It was not not a very big check, but there was a check in the mail, and I remember standing there looking at this check at the mailbox and thinking, I could go camping and get paid for this. That's for me. I'm going into photography. (laughs) That is literally the story of how I got into photography. It happened right there. So I've been in it uh, ever since. Basically, uh, at the company where I was working, I, in effect, stopped working. It took them about 18 months before they noticed. And uh, they suggested that I leave my desk. And I did. And the rest is history. (laughs) Photography worked well for me.
0: So. Yeah, and, and, and since then you've produced several books and you've made quite a name for yourself as a as a black and white master printer is what people usually refer to you as and and, and I, I'm particularly interested in the books that you've produced, especially the books that you've incorporated some music that goes along with them, and I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how that particular mixture of mediums came about, and perhaps tell us a little bit about how that transforms the viewing experience.
1: Well, actually, there's a lot (laughs) right there. We could go on for days with what you just asked. I I feel that there's a lot of relationships, not only within the arts, but between the arts and sciences and uh, basically everything in life. John Muir said it best. He said, when you try to isolate something, you realize that everything is hitched together to everything else in the universe. And he was absolutely correct. Uh, He, by the way, was the fellow who started the Sierra Club. So, a naturalist. Uh, Anyway, I feel that uh, there's a lot with education itself. I feel the main aspect of education should be teaching people how to learn not the subject matter itself and it shouldn't really be a vocational thing it has to be to an extent but basically learning how to learn and I think that there's a lot of relationships that go on here I know that uh, getting into photography uh, I was benefited by my math background and under- understanding the Ansel Adams' own system, which I'm sure every photographer has heard about. I read about it and understood it right away because it's, it was really quite simple. Uh, many instructors make it incredibly difficult to understand, uh, but there's no need for that. Uh, it is a simple system. Um, and I also felt that there's a great deal of relationships uh, within the arts. And for instance, very often when I'm looking at a photograph or even a scene that leads to a photograph, I will hear music and I feel there is a relationship. There's certain things in the shapes, the forms, the rhythms of the thing I'm looking at that just brings music to my mind. Uh, In a complementary fashion often I will listen to a piece of music and I will see imagery. So the two to me, are closely related. And it came through in my first uh, book that was titled Visual Symphony. Uh, I came up with that title. Um, There were four segments to the book for different bodies of work, which struck me as being very similar to the typical four movements of a standard classical symphony. Just the title came through to me. Years later, after having had that book published, uh, I had many, many more image images, and I was thinking again along musical lines, and I thought of the term tone poems. And at that same time, I had met a pianist uh, in the Seattle area, very fine pianist, Judith Cohen. She had just produced three brand new CDs. She had produced others in the past, but she had just recorded three new ones. And I was at a large party, congratulatory party for her. And while she was sitting at the piano playing, I was suddenly thinking, as long as I have this title for this alleged book that I wanted to put out called Tone Poems or Alleged Set of Books, why not include the music as well?" And after she finished playing, I went over to her, introduced myself, and told her about this book project I have in mind and the title. And I said, would you be interested in doing a collaboration? And she said, that would be wonderful. And quite honestly, it was like hearing yes to a marriage proposal. <laughs> it was just <laughs> remarkable. And it just went on from there. And We did produce uh, two books. I had initially hoped for four, uh, but sales were not enough to bring it past the the two that were produced. But Judith and I chose music that we felt emotionally went along with the imagery in the books. So that's really what that's all about. And it was not just uh, Judith It was, in some cases, not only her as soloist, but there were some duets and several trios with members of the Seattle Symphony Orchestra.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, I think you definitely have a lot going on there in terms of pairing music and uh, visual art. I feel like that's super ingenious. I, I... I'm not a musician myself, but I could see how pairing music with a book would be a really interesting experience. and I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about like what that process was like in terms of figuring out how to sequence the images in the book with the musical score because it seems I'm like which one came first.
1: The images came first. I mean that was that was really it. Um, and basically, I chose most of the music uh, from records, old records, vinyl records, that are new again, uh, and CDs that I had. And uh, with the help of Judith and the recording engineer, uh, Al Swanson, uh, who was the recording engineer uh, for all of the music that was recorded by the Seattle Symphony Orchestra. Uh, He was not just a recording engineer. He went well beyond that um, because he could read the music. And uh, so I was there at the recording sessions uh, for the music that we decided uh, to use to represent the various sections of the book. So it was uh, a learning experience for me. It was a learning experience for all of us. But it was a wonderful experience, I mean, doing all this and putting it together and eventually coming up with a book that included a CD of all the recorded music for each of the books. And uh, I must say, and this will probably surprise a lot of people, that I personally cannot look at the imagery of the book and simultaneously listen to the music. I cannot do that. If I'm looking at the book mm. and really looking at the pictures, the music disappears. If I'm listening to the music, I'm simply turning pages. Okay? I know people who can do both. I can listen to the music and picture the images, but I can't be looking at them. I could picture the images and hear the music. Interesting. But I cannot do both. But I think one of the finest compliments uh, that I ever got on the book was by a musician who had the book. And he uh, opened it up one day and put on the CD and was looking and listening. And he suddenly said, this isn't working. This this just is not working at all. And he suddenly looked, realized he was looking at the first set of images and listening to the second set of music. And when he got those uh, meshed together, he said, aha, this does work together. And that made me really feel good, you know. So there was, there was a clear relationship and the, uh, the imagery that was chosen.
0: Maybe that's why we haven't seen a bunch of that done before, just because it's not easy to do both at the same time.
1: Well, you know, there was even a, a third thing. Uh, those two books uh, I published myself. And the reason that I did was that I had gone to publishers and they liked the concept, but they seemed totally flummoxed. Do we put this in a bookstore under photography? Do we put it under music? Um, They just really didn't know where to place it, I guess, in the Dewey Decimal System. And they backed off. They liked the idea, but did not Hmm. really... Seem to know how to put it into effect, so I basically just did it myself, and therein lay the lay the problem, you know, uh, because I don't have distribution and all those other things, uh, which are really the business side of putting a book together.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I totally get that. Well, let's shift gears completely um, because I want to capitalize the time I have with you, and I would love for you to tell us about your approach to composition. And I'm guessing you're going to share with us some images that you've got. We've got some screen sharing. You're the first person to do this. So I'm kind of <laughs> excited for that. So, you know, the, the experience is going to be a little different for those on YouTube. But You'll just have to bear with us if you're listening.
1: <laughs> I'm putting this one on because it is has been throughout my career. Uh, my most popular photograph. It's the one that has sold the most. Um, let me just as a, as an aside say sales uh, really has very little to do with quality of an image. Because there could be wonderful photographs that don't sell and there could be poor photographs that sell very well, but this is certainly a well-known photograph of mine. Uh, Made in 1973, uh, titled Basin Mountain Approaching Storm. This is on the east side of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, uh, made in November. What did I see? You You asked about composition here. Well, what I saw Let's go to the scene itself. I saw mountains, a set of mountains that are rising almost two miles above where I was standing that are being overcome by clouds and an approaching storm. There were some clouds that were basically overhead, those are the dark ones at the top, and a set of clouds coming over the mountains. And What I wanted for something in the foreground was something that was just pleasant and just north of the town of Bishop there are several large uh, ranches and I found this cowboy fence right at the uh, edge of a road, I parked my car right there, basically pulled out my tripod, my 4x5 camera, set it up basically right at the trunk of the car across the road. And you just see a little piece of that road in the lower right corner and the cowboy fence, the corral fence behind it and Basin Mountain straight in the middle in front of that. And basically what I saw from a compositional point of view was a whole series of stripes, dark shadows in the foreground, a bright field behind it, darker shadows bright uh, sunlit mountains with snow on them, clouds, sky, and dark clouds at the top. So there was a compositional uh, unity in, in this linearity that I saw within the scene. I made one exposure, and that was it. And that's usually what I do. Um, some people will make several exposures, and today, of course, digitally, People make multitudes of exposures uh, working uh, with uh, a 4x5 camera, except if I feel that either things are changing in a way that uh, maybe a second exposure would be better, the light has changed, in a situation like this, maybe the clouds, whatever, had changed in a way that made Mm -hmm. another exposure Mm -hmm. seem like it could be even better. Or if I felt that I somehow made a mistake myself, maybe I bumped the tripod at a key moment or something like that. uh, I usually confine myself to one exposure. And that's it. Uh, And that's the case over here. With,
0: With this image, I'm curious, because this was shot on 4x5 film, I'm wondering how much darkroom work did you have to do in terms of teasing out some of those tonality differences in terms of the you know the what you were talking about compositionally you've got for those listening it, it's really interesting to see the from bottom to top it's uh, it's very dark it's bright it's dark it's bright and it's dark again all the way from bottom to top like these gradiated layers and um i'm curious just how much work you had to do to kind of emphasize some of those tones
1: In two words, a lot. Um, To be more specific, uh, this uh, photograph requires a great deal of darkroom work. Um, During the basic exposure, you see all those grasses and bushes in the foreground. I'm dodging that or preventing light from hitting that and making it lighter uh, during the basic exposure. And then after that basic exposure, while I'm lightening the bottom, Basically, almost uh, like you would do if you were playing the piano, I'm just running my fingers back and forth, following the contours of the shadows, you might say, throughout that basic exposure. And then I'm burning, I'm giving more exposure to the top half and more to the top third. And then I come in and I burn those... uh, rugged hills on the center left below the mountains and i burn that uh, mountainside on the center right below the clouds uh so there's manipulation kind of all over the place the light was there but um, from a practical point of view when you look at the bottom half the the scene the landscape that was lit, uh, it was actually still quite a bit darker than the sky itself and the sunlit uh, mountainside uh, that is covered with snow. So the upper part has to be brought back into balance with the lower part. Uh, so that's, that's kind of uh, a little bit of what goes into making this photograph. What you have to realize, if you're a photographer, is, you know, you, you look at the scene, you look at what is out there. But the only thing that a camera records, and when I say a camera, whether it's uh, using film or digital sensors, what is recorded are simply light levels. That's the only thing that film or digital sensors understand. Uh, They do not understand a face, a mountain, uh, a building, anything else. They just see light levels. So as a photographer, you have to look at the scene and look through it to the levels of light. And you have to also be aware of what manipulative options you have in the darkroom uh, or on the computer. And... I felt that I was able to work through, uh, you might say, the direct failings of light and be able to lighten areas that could be too dark and darken areas that would be too light to create the final photograph. I hope that answers the question.
0: It does. And, you know, I'm not personally a fan of rules in terms of composition but I can't help but notice that this particular image does seem to kind of adhere to the rule of thirds. You know, you've got that nice fence at the bottom third, you've got the dark clouds at the top third, and then you've got the mountains kind of sandwiched in between, which I'm curious, when you're in the field composing, are you using rules or are you just... Is it more just in terms of uh, what... Kind of pleases your mind's eye in terms of what you're seeing, or kind of what's your approach to combining uh, the elements in the frame to make them suit your vision.
1: Well, first of all, let me say the way you uh, articulated rule of thirds here is not the way I've ever understood it. Uh, Usually, what people are talking about (laughs) is placing a center of interest kind of a third of the way in and a third of the way up or down. And that's what they generally mean by rule of thirds. Uh, But I think that that rule and every other one is about as useless and meaningless as anything could be. It was the last thing I was thinking about when I made this photograph or any other. Um, I actually, in fact, go farther. Some people say, well, it's good to learn the rules and it kind of helps you get toward a good composition, but then you could kind of throw them out. I think it's better not to ever know the rules, whatever those stupid rules are, uh, because then you don't have to even concern yourself with avoiding them, which is really what happens to a lot of people. Uh, (laughs) They they try to actively avoid something. I think it basically has to be a gut feeling, and that is something looks good in the scene, whatever the scene is, and you have to be able to translate that scene in your mind's eye to the image that you're going to place in front of somebody uh, and see, number one, can I do it? And does it say what I want it to say? And I think those are the important things, and those are devoid of any rules whatsoever.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but I will say just... Looking at this particular image, for me, what makes it work so well is the way that you've harmoniously uh, placed objects or light in the frame in terms of balancing out the elements. So you've got your hero, the subject, the mountain in the center, but on either side of it, you have darker mountains and then you've got the dark clouds at the top which keep the eye from going out the frame that way. And you've got the dark fence at the bottom, which prevent the eye from going that way. And then you've got fence posts kind of pointing up into the scene, which help guide the eye of this is what you want to look at. So for me, whether or not you used the rule of thirds or not, you definitely um, employed some compositional skills to lead the viewer to the right place.
1: Great. If, if that's how you feel about it, then that's great. Uh, you know what that tells me? That tells me that this photograph is successful in your eyes, and I'm pleased to hear that.
0: What else do you got? You got, I mean, you got like a whole film strip down there. Let me
1: jump to a photograph I made the very next day. Um, this, this photograph was made just prior to a little weekend workshop that I was doing for the Sierra Club, um, back in those days, 1973, and I skipped breakfast in order to make this shot. Um, Later that day, that storm, those clouds did come in, and uh, we were hit with uh, some rain and snow and sleet. And the next morning, from the town of Bishop on the east side of the Sierra where we were, I suggested that we drive south along the eastern front of the mountains to the town of Lone Pine, about 60 miles south, and maybe we could get out of the bad weather. And the next day, we drove down there, and I made this photograph the very next day. This was the most spectacular cloud I had ever seen or have ever seen ever since then. Uh, this was made the next uh, uh, early afternoon. Uh, the Sierra Nevada mountains are actually off to the right. You just see a slope of it just starting to go up uh, toward the lower right on the left you see a big mound that 's a portion of what 's known as the Alabama Hills, which are nowhere near as high as the Sierra, but they look much higher here and then this incredible Sierra wave cloud which uh, which is the type of lenticular cloud that is often seen in the Owens Valley, which is just below the summits of the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains on the east side, caused by uh, just the extraordinary weather conditions created by the mountains themselves. So here is a photograph made uh, the very next day. It was quite a remarkable weekend of photography for me.
0: Hey, tell us kind of what you're thinking compositionally and why you feel like the image works.
1: I'm not even sure what I was thinking compositionally. At this point I just saw this stupendous cloud uh, the likes of which I had never seen and the way the sunlight was hitting it and subtly showing off. You could see some of these lines along here uh, and, of course, this major line that comes across here. But uh, I just could not believe the shape of this cloud and how it was lit. It was just completely unearthly.
0: I love it. For me, compositionally, I think you've done an interesting job here of, again, keeping the viewer encased in the frame, I think that's something a lot of photographers fail to do with their images is they don't give the eye somewhere to rest and to you know, continue to explore the frame. And what you've done here, um, probably through some selective dodging and burning, is you've made it to where the eye keeps coming back to that cloud and the way it kind of swirls around at the center of the frame and you are drawn into those textures and those lines. So I think that's what makes this image work for me.
1: Wonderful. Great. I thank you. Let me, uh, let me jump, uh, from that to just a few other photographs that, uh, are ones that, uh, I think are, uh, ones that I'm, I'm known for. Uh, so let me jump to this. This is Fallen Sequoias, uh, photograph made in 1977. I was in Sequoia National Park. Uh, My wife was actually there because she was doing environmental work for an agency that she was working uh, with, an environmental agency. And my job was to just wander around that day. And I came across this scene, which is actually something that had been there for nine years. In 1968, a giant sequoia tree just fell over one day. Um, It uh, was not a windy day. It was a pleasant day. The tree fell over. On its way down, it hit another sequoia tree and knocked it over. The very next day, right in the same area, another sequoia tree fell over, and it, too, hit another tree on the way down. And there it was, because it was in a national park, nothing was touched, nothing was moved. I came upon this on a foggy day, nine years later, and there it was. I walked around the whole set of fallen, angled trees, just to see, this was just so stupendous, to give you an idea, that tree that is clearly the prime one at the extreme angle, is approximately 14 feet in diameter. That'll give you an idea of the scale of what you're looking at over here. Um, And it was very fortunate to be a foggy day. I didn't have bright uh, spots of sunlight and shade. And back in the distance, the trees just kind of faded away into the fog. So I was able to make this. I circled this whole uh, destruction area, you might call it, where the trees had fallen, and finally chose this location because I liked the relationship of the big tree that's up at the top and all of the smaller branches and things down in the lower right. They just seemed to echo one another. <clears throat> and I thought this was where the photograph had to be made. It was quite a dynamic situation. I have no idea how long it lasted, for how many years after this, or if it's even still there today. But this was in 1977.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, obviously fog is incredible in terms of helping to isolate your subject. But what's powerful about this image for me is just the diagonals. And like you said, the You've got these, you know, trees that are upright, and then you have this other one that's just, boom, cuts right through the scene. And then it has this other tree laying on top of it that just anchors that bottom lower third. And and then you have the other trees at the bottom right that anchor the other lower third. So it's a very uh, harmonious image in that regard as well.
1: This photograph, which was made from the back steps of the state capitol building in California, in Sacramento, California, uh, looking out to an arboretum that's right behind the state capitol. It started out as a foggy morning, and when I stepped to that location, the sun was just starting to break through the clouds. I actually made this photograph as a test. It was a test of a new development system that a good friend and workshop co-instructor, Ray McSavany, had discovered by using very very dilute solution of the developer Kodak developer HC110, um, and he found that by using extremely dilute solutions, he could really uh, retain uh, contrast in a very high contrast situation. So you could pr- pretty much imagine, I'm looking at the sha- shadowed side of these trees and here the sun is actually coming through and you could see on those two very prominent branches that head toward the upper right of the image, the sun is actually right between them. Okay, so it's an extremely contrasty situation and yet using the uh, very dilute solution that Ray had discovered, I was able to maintain contrast and, in fact, actually lower the contrast to the point where everything, even the shaded side of the trees, looked very bright and luminous in a situation that uh, well exceeded 10 zones on on the light meter scale.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, most of the time people talk about the knock-on film being it doesn't have enough dynamic range, but in this particular situation, it's obvious that you've captured almost the full spectrum of dynamic range that's within this image.
1: Well, not only that, it doesn't even go to a black. Uh, so it, it captured or retained it. First of all, most people, many people, let's say, do not realize that film actually contains zones range up into the teens generally about 16 to 18 zones, not the 10 zones that most people feel is there. Um, so by exposing the negative the way I did and developing it the way I did, I was uh, compacting a number of zones, all of which were on the film, to a very easily printable small range of tonalities. And that's how I was able to make this mm. photograph. The reason that I uh, made this photograph, as I said, was a test to see if this extreme, uh, extremely dilute solution would actually develop a negative and reduce the contrast in a very high contrast situation to one that was printable. And uh, this one proved it to me that it worked. I actually thought there would be very little application for it but I was very happy to know that if I ever ran into something like that, I could use this particular technique to rein in the contrast. Now I think I think that almost everybody could relate to the contrast in this kind of a scene. So let me jump to something <coughs> that I ran into. Merely two weeks after developing this negative and making the first print, as you see here, to a situation that became perhaps the heart of my photography. And let me say, before I put this next photograph up on the screen, let me say that it was developed in exactly the same way as this image in Capitol Park. In Sacramento. It's hard to imagine that the previous image and this image were developed identically. You can easily understand the dynamic range that was there in the previous image uh, in, the, in that arboretum. Here, the dynamic range actually exceeded that of the film. And what I did in making this particular photograph is I took several meter readings that showed me the range just being beyond uh, the film's capability, and I exposed for the brightest highlight, which is basically right directly in the center of this image, with this dark massive wall below it in Antelope Canyon, which is now a real tourist trap. But at that point in 1980, when I first saw this, uh, was completely unknown. So I made this photograph after seeing it for the first time January 1st without a camera late in the afternoon. I brought my camera in the next morning and made this photograph. And I will say that this from the moment I saw it the previous day, to this day, is my own absolute favorite photograph. And let me explain why. I mentioned earlier that I had hoped to become a great researcher in physics, specifically in particle physics, subatomic physics, and or cosmological physics at the... uh, Galactic and intergalactic levels, but I never made it. I never got to that point. Uh, I just felt I was over my head. But when I walked into Antelope Canyon, I felt that I walked into a force field, which was precisely what I would have been researching at the subatomic level and what I would have been researching at the intergalactic level. You're basically dealing with force fields. And this photograph, to me, brought me right back to my roots because at the subatomic level, that large black form, to me, represented, for instance, the nucleus of an atom and what's swirling around it are the electrons that swirl around the nucleus of the atom. At the galactic level, that Mm -hmm. black form... Is the black hole at the center of our galaxy and what's swirling around it are the stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, Andromeda, and so many other spiral galaxies. And we know now that there's effectively an infinite number of those out in the universe. So this photograph uh, just brought my whole life together. And not only did I make this photograph, but then I started finding, looking for, and finding other slit canyons, as I call them immediately, and have since called them, not slot canyons, which reminds me too much of Las Vegas, uh, but slit canyons, because it's like (laughs) a slit in the earth. And I started making other photographs. So here's one I made in lower antelope Canyon that I call the wall with two Mm. ridges. And here, quickly, is another that I made in a place called Peach Canyon, Uh, and I just call it hollows and points Mm. Peach Canyon. And quite honestly, to this very day, I don't know of anybody who actually did any serious body of photographic work in these canyons prior to the ones that I did. So basically, I feel that I pretty well opened up this uh, whole field of photographic endeavor. You know, you've always heard the term, well, everything's been photographed. But the fact is that these canyons, to my understanding, uh, had never been photographed before I did. But now they've been photographed heavily because they're, uh, they're very the areas
0: I actually just did a private tour of a saw canyon over there about a week ago now it's incredible it's an amazing experience to to photograph them so thank you for pioneering slit canyon photography because it's definitely one of my favorite subjects although to your point now it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find one that's not Polluted with humans. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, these these places I photographed uh, largely from the time I discovered them, uh, nineteen eighty. Actually, <laughs> walked into Antelope Canyon on January first, nineteen eighty, which was a hell of a way to start a decade. And I photographed them pretty much through uh, through nineteen ninety eight. But I've stayed away from that area now because uh, the press of people and the kind of circus that goes on with it uh, is more than I could take. These places are really quite sacred to me, but I don't think I'll ever go back into those in that area again because I'm just too emotionally attached, you might say, to these uh, to witness the circus that's going on today. Uh, So I don't want to be part of it. Mm. So I've gone to other areas. I I had my time there. I'm very happy that I had my time there. Um, But I just figured by 1998, it was time to move on and go to other places. So I've discovered other places and other photographs. Here's one that I made in a canyon that I've been uh, backpacking and doing workshops in these canyons uh, for quite some time. This is uh, a a wall detail in Wolverine Canyon in southern Utah, one of the tributaries of the Escalante River, which is a tributary Mm -hmm. itself of the Colorado River. And I've been doing backpacking workshops, taking people into these canyons. So here's a photograph that uh, struck me as kind of a bas-relief of an Indian head, some people uh, see in this uh, bar relief, they all see a bar relief of the head. Some people felt it was an Egyptian princess.
0: I was gonna say it looks like uh, Cleopatra. <laughs> yeah, know, maybe this is a good segue though. I-, I wanted to ask you, because it's come up now over and over again in these images you're showing, that a lot of your images seem to have some kind of Relation to something else that's maybe representative or an abstract or a metaphor, and I'm curious, how do you identify the subjects that you point your camera out? Like, what goes through your mind when you're you're, you're walking this canyon and the Wolverine, you know, tributary, and you see this? Like, how do, how did you know that? Aha. This is a photo.
1: I was wandering along. This was actually during a workshop. The entire group was walking up this canyon. I happened to be uh, in the front at this point. People are stopping. They're photographing along the way. I was there with the students and with the co-instructor. And at one point, and in in this particular location, it's not quite a slip canyon by any means. You could step back from one wall to the other. There are probably... 50 or 60 feet apart at this point. But I'm walking along and I just looked up on this one wall and there was this large bar relief that, uh, that face and neck are probably in the range of 12 to 15 feet high. Okay, so it was quite a large structure, you might say, on this wall. And it just immediately struck me as a profile. Uh, uh, if you've ever seen, of course, the old Indian head nickels, uh, that's actually what it struck me as uh, initially. Mm-hmm. So I call it just Indian head bas-relief. I'm perfectly happy with Cleopatra or anything else like that. Uh, but beyond uh, the, the face that you see there, as you go toward the lower left, there's almost echoes of it. And then mm-hmm. surrounding it. From the lower right of the image over the top of the head and up to the upper left, there's just like a frame. It almost framed itself. And uh, I mean, I set up my camera uh, and chose the lens that just encompassed exactly what I saw. So this is actually 100% full frame of what I saw and photographed there. And it was just an astonishing feel, you know, to see this. And in fact, what I did, because the whole group was there, you know, I could have just uh, stood there and just photographed this and walked away. I just called out to the whole group, and I was saying, come over here, you've got to see this. So everybody photographed this. I mean, I didn't point out anything, I just said, look up there. And everybody immediately saw uh, this profile. Uh, So a lot of people photographed it in color. Uh, I think most people photographed it in color. Uh, And I photographed it this way. But I also did photograph it digitally uh, in color as well. But I really like the black and white better.
0: So you seem to be drawn to images that evoke something else in terms of it's more than just represent of what you're looking at. it's It seems that there's often some sort of metaphor woven into the compositions that you see. And I'm curious if that's something that you've just come to become better at over time, or if that's always been something that you had a talent for, or maybe you could talk about how that works for you.
1: Well, let me say that uh, what you just said kind of goes along with the uh fairly well-known statement by Minor White, who said we should photograph something for what it is and for what else it is. Which I think is a, a wonderful statement on his part. The what else it is is, you know, the abstract underpinning. you go to those several photographs I made in Antelope Canyon, uh, or, or the other canyons, where those are specifically... Uh, meant to show forces in nature. I mean think of uh, a bar magnet held under a sheet of paper where iron filings are sprinkled over the paper and you see the lines of force that the magnet creates. Uh, The several photographs that I showed prior to this one uh, to me are exactly those lines of force and that's what I saw and felt when I first walked into Antelope Canyon. I did not feel that I had walked into a sandstone canyon. I literally felt that I had walked into a force field. And I remember thinking, I could have been studying this sort of stuff theoretically, and now I'm in it. I literally felt I was in a force field. And I was thinking, my God, I am so far ahead of those researchers. They're researching this stuff, I'm in it. That literally went through my mind. <laughs> so that you know was part of my thinking and that's why that image that I showed you, I'll put it back up, um, just rang, it resonated with me so thoroughly and still does that it was kind of the embodiment of wrapping my whole life together. Now I'm in photography but this really harkened back to my thoughts that I could be a great researcher in the forces of nature at the subatomic or galactic level.
0: That's awesome, Bruce. That's great that you've been able to tie photography back into your early passions in physics. I think, and I find this happens often with some of my favorite photographers, that they're able to pair their love of photography with some other love of a natural science or a theoretical science and whether it be you know geology or it could even be uh, music or it could be uh, painting I've always found that my favorite photographers it's not just about photography it's always about something else that just kind of gets woven into it that really elevates it and I'm curious if that's something that that you've recognized as well
1: oh yeah yeah, for, for sure I've recognized that. And on this particular photograph, I mean, it hit me over the head. It wasn't something I had to think about. <laughs> I mean, it was there when I first walked into Antelope Canyon, and then I came across this particular structure, and I remember almost out loud, but I couldn't even speak, uh, basically saying to myself, there's my first photograph tomorrow. Tomorrow, that next morning, we were going to be driving back home. But uh, I said, no, no, I've got to come back here and make this photograph and maybe a few others with the remaining sheets of film I had with me. It uh, was on kind of a uh, trip together with friends and never expected to find anything like this. Uh, <clears throat> and I still had a few sheets of unexposed film, and I used them up that next morning and then headed home
0: right that makes sense i want to move us along to another subject that i think is going to take a little bit of time hopefully and there's a lot to unpackage with my question and i'm going to let you kind of take it because i think there's a lot of things that you have woven into this concept so i would love for you to tell us about your upcoming book project Hey,
1: working on a major book project that never was even intended to be a book project uh, And like virtually anything that I've ever done photographically, it came about by happenstance. I I don't think I've ever conceived of a project in advance and said, oh, that's something I want to do and then go ahead and do it. I have found that I have started doing something and then realized that it was a self-contained project as I was partway through it and then completed that project. Here's what happened. Back in 2019, we are now in 2023, I decided that I was going to go through all of my black and white negatives, four by five negatives that I had made basically from the beginning of my career, or actually to be more precise, from right after I took uh, a workshop under Ansel Adams in 1970 uh, in in Yosemite National Park. I would start right after that workshop and go through all of my negatives with the idea that along the way I may have overlooked something that was good but I didn't recognize it at the the time. Or perhaps I uh, had tried printing something and failed at that time, perhaps with my lack of darkroom skills then or the photographic enlarging papers that existed then, which were the graded papers. And today we have variable contrast papers so you could print different parts of any image uh, at different contrast levels, you know. So um, there's much greater flexibility and I found along the way. I may be able to actually uh, resurrect an old image or two that I, like I say, I either overlooked or could not successfully print. What surprised me was that I kept finding more and more images. Now here's what happened. Uh, Right at the end of 2019, I had two major operations. I had my right and then my left hip replaced. (laughs) They were bone on bone, and I had just come back from several workshops, including a backpack workshop that made it very, very difficult to walk. So I had, in the space of five weeks, both uh, hip joints replaced. Well, that, of course, laid me up, and at that point I had nothing to do but review old Negatives. Actually, it wasn't the negatives that I was reviewing. It was actually the contact prints made directly from the negatives. So, four by five, low contrast contact prints. And to my amazement, I was putting one after another aside. There were a lot of nothings in between. I mean, some photographs that looked so horrible that I was just baffled by why I even made the exposure a lot of junk but there was a lot of really good stuff and at some point I started realizing I had enough over here that I got to do something with it I've got to do something and the idea of a book came about and with the idea of a book I thought well I need titles for the photographs and perhaps captions And with the growing number of images with titles and with captions, other thoughts came to mind. And some things, some thoughts about photography uh, that exceeded that of a caption came to mind. So I started writing essays. And uh, eventually I put together uh, a book... (laughs) that I'm hoping to get published that I'm titling Discoveries of a Lifetime. It started with the images uh, from my entire career that I discovered. So these were discoveries of a lifetime, and now I'm adding to them or substituting new images that I may make today, tomorrow, the next day, and I'm trying to keep it into some reasonable number of images, but I will have to admit at this point that it may have already exceeded all reasonable limits because I now have a book of approximately one hundred and sixty images uh, in mind that's that's a large
0: book. Uh, we produce a fine art photography book every year for this competition I created, and I think. 160 is about where we're at, something like that, and it is a lot. You're right. Yeah, it,
1: it, it may be too much, but what I've been doing is going over it uh, and just trying to think, which one should I take out, or which two should I take out, or three? And at this point, I've gotten to the point where I don't want to take any of them out. Uh, but I'm trying to limit myself to the idea that if I get a new photograph... That I really like, I'm only going to consider putting it in at the expense of one that's currently in. So I have to draw a line somewhere, and I don't know if I should have drawn that line long ago or not. Uh, I'm trying to evaluate that. Let me just jump uh, to the first one. This is one I call the Elegant Dune Ridge. This is made in Death Valley way back in 1976. The Hmm. idea behind the images in this book is that none of the images for the book are ones that I have ever had published or have ever displayed in a gallery. Uh, I have ruled out any like the ones that I previously showed you that have been uh, both uh, in a gallery Uh, perhaps in a museum, perhaps published in a book or magazine. So these are ones that have never been shown, you might say. And I feel that I have enough of them, and to me they are of sufficient quality that they stand up with what I have up to now done. And I believe that together with the captions... And with the essays as a full package, this book could really become my magnum opus. It would be very pleasing for me to be known for this book if it ever gets published. So that's the issue. So let me jump from image to image. And if you have any questions, Matt, when I show the image, why don't you just jump in if you have any questions or if you have any comments on them.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, this Death Valley image is fantastic. You now, it's not been published before, so I think it's going to be exciting for anyone that follows your work to get their hands on this book because it's going to be like a a greatest hits album that is of of Im- images that have never been seen before, which I think is awesome.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. I think so too. I, I must admit, uh, but uh, I just have to see if it can be published. I, I do have a prospective publisher at the moment, uh, but the publisher, small publishers, mainly published magazines, definitely wants to do the book. Hmm. But whether they have the time or the full knowledge of doing it is questionable. So uh, at this point, it's tentative. Uh, but at some point, it... Uh, We'll go into a crowdfunding uh, effort, and we'll see if the book can be published. And this one is not an old one. This was actually made last year during a workshop, and it's a photograph of my favorite mountain, which is Mount Whitney, the highest peak in the Sierra Nevada Mountains.
0: It's a fresh take on a classic scene, is what I how I would describe it to people who can't see it. Um, I think everyone has probably seen that jagged ridgeline of Mount Whitney from the Owen Valley before. With this particular image, it's got a lot more visual interest in the the lower two-thirds of the image are not Mount Whitney, and it's actually quite interesting.
1: This was kind of an unusual situation. Um, it was uh, a clear sky. I often will look at mountains and look at you know, kind of an exciting cloudy sky there, but there were no clouds uh, looking to the west, which is the direction I'm looking here, but there were clouds at sunrise between the sun and these mountains. And those clouds created the shadows on those ridges that run up toward the upper left in the photograph. And to me, uh, Mm. the uh, Alabama hills, these these rock piles that I was standing on in the foreground had not yet received the sun, uh, which were coming up over the Inyo Mountains that were directly behind me. And then there were shadows on the mountains that had already been hit by the sun, but now were partially occluded by some of those clouds. And then the only peak, and its, uh, it's stilettos just to the left, uh, that were being hit by full sun was the summit of Whitney and uh, and the pinnacles to the left of it. So it was a very very mm-hmm. exciting moment. I had to work as fast as I could when I saw this to take advantage of the situation. That would be a new one that would be in the new book.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of drama. In this particular image that you've just put up, again, for people who who can't see if they're listening, I would kind of describe it as a, a desert scene with a pool of water in kind of the lower left third center of the frame almost, with this kind of sandstone, dark sandstone butte leading up into some really dramatic clouds at the top of the frame. And then at the bottom of the frame, you've got these nice... Lines and uh, radiation of lights and like a couple of little little plants. It's a very pleasing scene to the eye.
1: This photograph is made at a fairly well-known tourist spot uh, known as the uh, Horseshoe Bend of the Colorado River. So this is on the plateau (laughs) at Bend. Um, And the photograph, I'd have to go back and look it up. I think it was made in about... 1990 or so um, but I uh, I was up on the plateau and there was just this wonderful storm that was just finishing up and the sun had actually just set directly behind uh, the butte that sticks up in the center of the image uh, and yet there was this beautiful pool mm-hmm. right in front of it and it was just calm as could be it looks like with the clouds like that the the pool should be roiling but it basically was calm and it was just a wonderful situation to encounter so let me jump to something else in the same book
0: yeah it looks like maybe captured in redwoods or sequoia you've got a, a footbridge in the foreground leading out that perspective line heading out into the center of the frame left left half of the frame with trees and and undergrowth, and it's a nice color tonality. And um, it's one of those images, you know, that it's like, oh, I could see myself standing right there.
1: (laughs) Well, in fact, it's neither Redwoods nor Sequoias. This is actually about four miles up the road from home. I live in a mountain valley in the North Cascades, north of Seattle. And uh, this is okay. just a bridge across a, uh, a small stream that just kind of leads you right into the forest. And of course, the forests up here in the yeah. Pacific Northwest are just as awesome as any could be anywhere. So this is actually the first image of a second portion of the book. I mentioned that the book has images and captions the way the book is to be laid out, every image is on the right-hand page. The left-hand page of that open book is the title and the caption. And then when I segue Mm. from one set of images to another set of images, uh, that's where I'm placing the essays between those segues. So this would actually be the first image of a group of photographs uh, that feature trees and forests after uh, an initial group of images that feature just wider landscapes.
0: As we're looking at these images, I wanted to weave in another topic and I'm curious if it relates to this Magnus Opus, so to speak, of your images. As I know that you had alluded to early on, your journey into photography was sparked by this uh, desire to take action on an environmental issue that you felt strongly about. And I know that you're you're clearly an active environmental advocate. Um, I'm curious how you've been able to weave that into your photography and why that's been so important for you. And I'm also curious if that's something you're going to try to do with this book as well.
1: I am. And I want to go to another image and then I want to read the essay that goes or the caption that goes along with this image okay there's the first image that i've shown you uh from this uh section of the book okay and there are a number of other images of trees with their titles and captions and then i have this one
0: okay it seems pretty clear to me the direction that you're heading with this <laughs> okay
1: Let me read you the caption that goes along with this one. I title this Fog Pickup Sticks. I seek beauty and compositional interest in my photographs. In this image, I find fascinating geometric lines on the foggy morning in the standing and leaning trees. I see compositional strength in the photograph. I see no beauty. In the subject matter itself. Forests tend to be inherently beautiful. This is not a forest. It's an outdoor raw lumber factory. Timber companies have coined the terms working forests and tree farms, two cleverly devised semantic deceptions for places like this to make them sound appealing, worthwhile, perfectly maintained. Instead, trees are grown to maximize speed until cut down for their monetary value. Collectively, they have no ability to support wildlife, to sequester carbon, or to provide the beauty a real forest imparts. None of that matters to the timber companies. The inherent values of any forest are ignored. Profit is the goal. If left to its own devices, this too can become a forest. It could take 100 to 300 years, maybe more, but it can slowly evolve into a forest, one that supports mosses, ferns, bushes, and other ground foliage that contains tree species diversity that supports wildlife, that sequesters carbon, that protects against erosion, that is richly beautiful to behold. Will we allow this outdoor lumber factory to become a real forest?
0: I love that you're making some statements with your images in this way. I mean, without... Having you read that, as soon as you transitioned to this image, I I got a sense of kind of the direction you were going in terms of contrasting that beautiful forest, with the bridge, with this image that while, like you said, compositionally it's very strong, it also imparts a message of destruction and of human interaction with the forest that has tainted it. And so I... I commend you for doing that. I think that is alone. I think is going to make your book stand apart if you're able to do that with regularity throughout throughout the book.
1: Well, you know, to me, the uh, the book is is really uh, a combination of the images and the words, and together, uh, I think it truly would be my magnum opus. Um, I think that it. It has, hopefully, a great deal of beauty in it, which is really what I'm looking for in my photography. But also, there's an important message, and uh, it's a soft message. That particular caption was about as hard a punch as I've put into words, and I believe that the imagery here is about as hard a punch as I could put into imagery, but it is part of the book, definitely part of the book. Let me, let me jump to just a few more images that would be in the coming book.
0: And yes, it's quite a bit different than any of the other images so far because it's almost <laughs> completely man-made structure.
1: Oh, it is completely man-made. This is the uh, flooded crypt of Winchester Cathedral in England.
0: Mm. How, does it, how does this fit in into your book?
1: Well, you'd have to see the book. Because
0: oh, you're going to do that? I <laughs> see.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, there, there, there's too much. The the, the way that the uh, landscapes uh, segue into the tree or fo- or forest images, and the way those segue into man-made images, and the way those segue back into segue into slit canyon images and the way slit canyon images segue into something else uh basically a set of abstract and uh, close-up images so here is one and this particular image that i'm showing right now that i call antelope canyon rhythms uh is the photograph that uh I've chosen to be the book cover.
0: Ah, so if I were to try to encapsulate the direction you're going with this, is that it seems like there are metaphorical themes that are kind of woven together in a thread throughout the book that you're just going to have to wait and see when you buy the book. In a sense,
1: that's, that's true. I mean, basically what I've done in rediscovering all of these images, like the previous one in Winchester Cathedral or this one in Antelope Canyon, I'm basically going through uh, my lifetime of photography and then putting them together in some sort of a, hopefully, logical sequence that does lead from A to B to C to D and so on and so forth through the book. Uh, with, hopefully, lots of surprises in there, but hopefully uh, a continuous thread that actually makes sense.
0: Hmm. All right, let's, let's see some more. Okay.
1: Some, like this one, are about as abstract as anything could be, intentionally so. The idea is that some people would look at a photograph like this uh, and want to go to the next page as quickly as possible. Other
0: people
1: <laughs> other people may look at something like this and say, my heavens, what am I looking at? And try to solve what it is. Some of them That's may me. not.
0: I want to solve it. <laughs> no.
1: And hopefully the people who are interested in the image, whether they solve it or not, are still willing to keep looking at it because they find the imagery fascinating whether they could figure it out or not. So in essence, I'm putting a puzzle in front of the viewer. And some people will figure it out and some Mm -hmm. people won't. But hopefully the people even who won't figure it out uh, will find it visually interesting and stimulating. So that's what I'm seeking right there. Here's another one.
0: They both work in that regard. I I am one of those people though. I like looking at those puzzles and I try to try to figure out, you know, what what am I looking at? Well, I guess in two ways. I'm trying to figure out okay, what am I looking at literally, but also what else is it? What is the photographer trying to say with this image? And I think that is what's so fun about tracked photography like this is that it can be so stimulating in that way. I'm other people like you said, other people might look at it and go Wow, it's mud and water with some reflected light. <laughs> but it's certainly a lot more than that. Yeah, and, and that,
1: of course, in this case, is exactly what it is. Um, and some people don't even figure that part out. Uh, but, you know, it's it, it's an issue that a lot of people, when they cannot figure it out, their reaction is, I don't know, and I don't care. And hopefully... Uh, there, there is enough visual interest that I get enough people to say I don't know, but I'm still fascinated. Rather than I don't care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, there right, will be right, abstracts. Right. There will be non-abstracts. Here's another
0: beautiful. And, yeah, for you know, those of you listening be- on the, on the audio-only podcast, you're just going to have to watch the YouTube.
1: <laughs> uh, just to show you how the book is uh, related, something like this, which only the viewers can see, uh, is followed. The very next image in the book is this.
0: Yeah, which is interesting because you've got two completely different subjects, You know, one is stone, like I think I'm assuming that's like some sandstone wall or something. And then the next image is corn lily leaves in black and white, but they all both convey kind of a message of pattern and tonality that are very similar.
1: The biggest surprise of all to me was when I started coming across one set of images that uh, I had completely forgotten about, though they were related to the images that I have in the third section of my very first book, Visual Symphony, and that is uh, a section that was called uh, Urban Geometrics. But while I was making those photographs, there were a number of images that I made in, primarily in downtown areas of cities that I did not put in the book and completely forgot about. And these were even more wild and more enigmatic. And at some point, I just actually took these out as a separate issue. And they're together in this, hopefully, upcoming book under the title of Urban Enigmas. So let me just go through five of them that I've pulled off to the side and just show you this set that took me by surprise and then I've included several new ones that I've made recently having been self-inspired you might say to go back and do some more of these uh, images that were made Mm -hmm. in the downtown areas of of cities so this Mm -hmm. is number one of those and again Matt if you have any comments or questions let me know
0: yeah, I mean, maybe for the benefit of the listeners, I can describe the image really quickly if you could go back to it. I'm just guessing. <laughs> but it looks like we're looking at uh, some kind of large building of glass, That, but the glass is not perfectly even. It's almost like the glass is warped in some way. And so it's reflecting back a scene behind the photographer that is all warped and distorted and it's very interesting and it's got this grid-like pattern from the windows and it's, it's almost like you're looking into this distorted warp portal of different universes or something like that. Is that accurate? Very accurate. Very, very accurate. Yeah, let's keep going. And then this one looks, almost looks like you photographed this from, it seems like it's from like an incomplete structure. I know it probably isn't, but it almost has that feeling like you're in a construction zone and you're looking out into a cityscape. And what's most interesting about it is that it has all of these sections of different patterns. So you have these crisscrossing lines, you have these dihedrons or What well, I don't know, what are those, does that name of that shape <laughs> is? the 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 rectangle on its side the diamonds the pattern of diamonds um and Mm -hmm. then across from that you have totally different patterns as well so it's like you've just taken this set of buildings and you've created all these different patterns with visual interest which is really neat but not just patterns but also gradations of light which is super interesting Mm -hmm. and then another one it's lots of patterns lots of lines lots of glass lots of reflections and double reflections and a very interesting image
1: yeah i mean basically that's why i'm calling them urban enigmas
0: yeah and this one it's almost as if you're outside of a building looking in through the glass so you can sort of see the reflections of the street behind you and you can sort of see what's inside the building but not quite both (laughs) it's very cool
1: yeah it's it's really designed to be confusing.
0: It works. And then this one, again, you have really interesting swirly-twirly patterns on the left that I have no idea what created those. that That's fascinating. And then you have another dealer kind of windowed side of a building that has another reflection of a whole other area. So I think you're onto something with these, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I think I am too. And uh, three of those that I just showed were actually new ones. Uh, this one and the first one that I showed uh, were actually those made 30-plus years ago uh, and inspired me to go back mm. and see what I could start seeing again, uh, having, having been, like I say, self-inspired by these. So it's very interesting to me. Uh, uh, I feel that I am and always have been in an area of creativity And I feel that uh, it's hard to be in a better area than that.
0: Absolutely. Well, Bruce, maybe this is a great place to kind of land the plane here, so to speak. I have one more question for you, and it's always one of my favorite ones to ask people who have been in the industry for a while. and, And that is, who do you recommend... Our listeners learn more about who are some photographers that have inspired you?
1: Well, initially, of course, it was Ansel Adams. His landscapes uh, were what drew me into photography because I felt that of all the people who did landscape <laughs> photography, he was the guy who really got it. You know, I mean, he understood the landscape in a way, I guess, that I did without really knowing the landscape that much before seeing his photographs. So he was my initial main inspiration. Brett Weston was a dramatic inspiration to me because Brett Weston did uh, abstract work and I had been kind of pushing toward abstraction, but I knew that early in my career that when I was showing abstracts to anybody, Their reaction was clearly, I don't know and I don't care and I'd rather see a photograph of a mountain or a tree or a rock and stop showing me these abstracts. And I shied away from it. And uh, in Mm. 1979, with the two of my co-instructors, Ray McSavany and John Sexton, we took the whole group of students to Brett Weston's house. And he showed a number of photographs, and every one of them was abstract. And quite honestly, when I walked into his house, my feeling about abstraction was that it's something that tends to irritate people. And when I walked out of his house, (laughs) my feeling about abstraction was it's putting a puzzle in front of people, and they either solve it or they don't. And my my complete uh, reaction to abstraction changed right there, and I stopped hesitating to show abstraction. And that happened within an hour and a half. So that was a huge, huge yeah. influence on my life. And uh, let me name one third, uh, one other photographer, number three, and that is Ray McSavany, who I did workshops with for many many years he was a great photographer he died a few years ago of cancer unfortunately but working with ray and seeing his photographs and learning that method of controlling high contrast from him and all sorts of things ray was a a huge inspiration uh, to me
0: and then what about anyone who's still around several
1: I mean, I think that anybody who's seen the work of Sebastião Sagado will have to be inspired by his work. It's magnificent work, Brazilian photographer. And if anybody has seen the wildlife photography of Nick Brandt, just phenomenal. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: there are many others. There are certainly many others. But let me just uh, name those two as, as people who are doing marvelous work today.
0: All right. Well, Bruce, this has been really fun. Thank you for being the very first person to push the envelope with this technology on Riverside. (laughs) I think it's cool that you were actually to show your images on the screen and hopefully that translates and I have some editing that I get to do for the first time that I've never tried before. So thank you for pushing me to become a better podcaster.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me over. And if you want to uh, talk again, we could do it again sometime.
0: I love it. Well, thank you to Bruce for that great conversation and for sharing your life's work with us. I really appreciate it a lot. I hope that listeners will join me in supporting Bruce's book when it becomes available for presale, as I think it will be chock full of inspiration. That's what I love most about hosting this podcast. Not only do I get to learn from some of the world's most inspirational artists, but I also get to help foster a community that supports each other in a positive way. Thank you to everyone who is taking part. That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.